Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. You might be expecting Sam, but for the next few episodes, I'm going to be taking the reins. My name is Cecilia Rose. And I'm going to be interviewing women who are working in a number of ways to raise awareness of the work of women in maritime history. This is all part of a really exciting project called Rewriting Women into Maritime History, run by the Lloyds Register Foundation. And this aims to bring leading maritime organisations together to change our perceptions of the historical role of women in the industry over the centuries. One of the key aims of this project is to empower women by reframing the narrative of a predominantly masculine industry and by promoting opportunities to encourage more women into the sector. So to find out more about all of this, I spoke with Helen Doe, a maritime historian and author who has published extensively on maritime subjects, including the role of women in the industry. I hope you enjoy listening to her as much as I enjoyed talking with her. So without further ado, here's Helen. Helen, thank you for joining me today. I was wondering if you could firstly tell us about this really exciting Rewriting Women into Maritime History project and why we need it. Well, it, it, it was originated and, and really driven and led by Lloyd's Register Foundation. And they have come up with this, this idea of finding out more about women in maritime history but connecting it with today and looking at today's roles for women. And so showing women and encouraging women to, to join the maritime industry, which traditionally has been seen as a very male-dominated one. So we're really trying to show that, hey, everybody, it's not that male-dominated and actually hasn't been in the past. There are some surprising numbers of women involved, both on land and at sea in all sorts of different roles. I mean, today, there's an incredible range of opportunities. So it's a really exciting project, and, and I was delighted to be asked to, to help out with it. Brilliant. Um, and your work in particular definitely champions women in maritime history. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about that and how yourself and your work fits into it. Well, it began, I suppose, with my PhD, which was about 
business women in the 19th century. And when I began that, really there was, well, I started looking around at the literature and couldn't find anything very much about women, entrepreneurial women. You could find a lot about women in sort of um, small roles or women as, as, as victims sometimes um, and and women dressing up as uh, occasionally find the, the women cross-dressing but they were very few and far between and there didn't seem to be any women who were kind of leading the way in taking decisions and running things and that's what I was interested in so literally when I began there was there was I think my supervisor at the time was rather um, sceptical that I might find anything I mean, his view is that you'll find lots, you might find diaries and things. You know, I never found one diary in my whole time. I think these women were far too busy running for things to, to write diaries as well. Definitely. And that PhD then became one of your most successful books, Enterprising Women and Shipping in the 19th Century. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about that book and um, give us an example of an enterprising woman in shipping in the 19th century. Well, the, the book um, covers, I, I suppose, suppose, two aspects. One is it looks at ship owners. And you might kind of think, well, ship owners are just people who have shares in ships. Well, a ship owner under maritime law is rather more involved with the business of the ship than that. If, if you're a share owner in a limited company, you, apart from the kind of AGM, you don't have very much power. Whereas... In shipping, each ship had a maximum of 32 owners, and those owners had real power. They were the board of directors. And so I found a large number of women, 12% of all shipping in the 19th century was owned by women. Wow. Which is a not insignificant number. And that's and that I, the ones I could find, because the challenge with researching women is because they get married, you, they then disappear. So mm. things become, you know, end up in their husband's name. So it may be their money. So that's 12% of the ones I could find. So that's, uh, and then the other thing I would find, each ship then had to have someone who was managing the affairs of the ship, appointing the master, you know, deciding on the business and, and paying out things and answering to the other owners. And there were quite a few women who did that. So although they might not have been to sea, they were actually running the business of the ship. Yes. And as you said, because they're just the ones that you could find, it was probably actually more than 12%. Absolutely. Um, it's just the tip of the iceberg. These are the ones I could identify. So there was the ship owners and the managers of the ship business. But then there's also in the shipping world, um, you've got the people who build ships, who run sailmaking businesses, foundries, um, all sorts of, the, you know, any kind of thing you can think of, women were involved in running those businesses. And I've got some very significant shipbuilding businesses, large ones run by women. Oh, which ones? Well, a couple of my absolute favourites are from the Napoleonic Wars. And we have Mrs. Frances Barnard, who her husband died and her two sons were under 21. And the business went into her name and she ran it for 25 years in her own name. And even when her sons joined her, she still was in charge. 
And at one time, she was employing nearly 500 workmen on the Thames. Wow. So how important do you think these roles were? Could the maritime industry have functioned without women? Well, how can industries function without women? Full stop. <laughs> very true. <laughs> um, I think they, they were very important. They were, and the thing that's interesting is they were accepted by everybody they're working with. You know, they not only were, um, they had male customers, they had male um, employees. And the thing I found on several occasions was that very often a husband or someone else was supporting them in what they were doing. You know, the husbands mm. left their businesses to their wives because they knew they could run them. Yeah. So you find this support um, carry on all, all the time. The thing that I find interesting is, was the maritime industry any different? Because you don't find quite so many women running businesses in other industries. And my answer to that is, I think there's two aspects to that. One is that maritime communities, when the men were away, they were away um, sailing, they might be away for six months, a year, and in some cases, two years if they were whaling. So you've got communities of women who are having to get on and be more independent and take decisions. They don't have a choice. They've got to get on and do yeah. that. So I think you've got more independent communities of women on the one hand. But on the other hand, I do have to say that within the maritime industry, because of the way that ship owning is displayed, we can get to the sources more easily. So mm. I think there's some luck there in the sense that in the maritime industry, some of the source material is, is more readily available. Because I can't believe that women were simply just sitting back and or lying on their, their, reclining on their sofas during the Victorian period. No. But that's interesting. If they were so involved and there's actually sources that support that, why do you think it is that women have been largely excluded from the maritime history narrative? I don't think they've been excluded in that sense. I just don't think anybody's been interested enough to find them until oh. <laughs> you know, relatively recently. And, and I found it very interesting. When my book first came out, um, I had an interesting couple of reviews. And one reviewer said, um, and this was a, a male reviewer, I do have to say, uh, said, um, well, you know, it, it didn't have enough about the men and putting the women's contribution in context. What? Which I found slightly odd because I thought there's all these been all these other books, maritime books about men, which did not. Mm. You could say the opposite. Where were the women? Exactly. So I, found, I found that a curious, a curious. Uh, yes, he was referring particularly to the share owning and saying, you know what, I hadn't compared it sufficiently with male shareholding. Yeah, it's definitely work that that needed to be done, and it's quite concerning that. Other people hadn't looked into it before as well. It had um, been work done on, on women fishing. And, I see, uh, so OK. The women in fishing. And there'd also been some work done in the US about women um, at home when their husbands were away whaling, so whaling wives. But that largely assumed that the women were still very dependent. And I found that mm. curious because when I looked at the sources for that book, the sources were um, a series of dead letters, you know, they'd lost letters that had been found, where the women were writing to their husbands at sea. Now, and the, my 
scepticism on that would say, well, if you're right at your husband at sea, he's been away for six months or more, are you really going to tell him, don't worry, darling, I'm doing absolutely fine without you. <laughs> I don't need exactly. you. I'm running the business far more successfully anyway. <laughs> but possibly they were. <laughs> Just possibly. And so how would these women initially get into these industries? Are you finding that they're all from a similar background, um, a similar class, or is it a complete range of different women who are able to access these industries and these lives? From the work that I've done in the 19th century, it's been quite a range. Um, And it's largely because they are, and as was typical of the time, if you're part of a community and you've got family interests, you tend to follow that that same interest. So if your father mm. was involved or your brother or husband. And then the thing about, again, about researching women, particularly uh, married women, you only find out about them when their husband dies. So if they take over a business, the thing I was looking at, if they take over a business, if the transition is smooth, their husband dies, they take over the business. That's how I've discovered them because I've suddenly got a woman's name running a business. Um, If that transition is smooth and the business then carries on for a while, that would suggest to me that she's been involved in it beforehand. Because very often women were working hand in hand with their husbands. Women are often doing the finances. That's quite common in several industries. So to me, if that transition is very smooth, uh, there have been, uh, there were examples of women who, instantly found some you know found a man to run the business for them because they didn't want to cope with it and that's I good see. that's fine but that just highlights all the others who didn't yes so if they hand it over to another man you can assume that they perhaps did less but alongside they just their didn't husband. want to be involved in that business yeah yeah i had one case of a, a woman who was inherited from her husband um, but she quickly handed over part of the business to her son because she made it quite clear she didn't want to be customer facing. So she felt oh. he should do, he should do that, but she wanted the more sort of background. But there were other women who were very happy to be very definitely customer facing and some pretty important customers. So after all of this amazing research, why do you think that these women are still relevant to us today and what can we learn from them now? I think it really encourages all of us um, to keep going and doing the jobs that we want to do. Uh, these women were pioneers. They didn't see themselves as pioneers. They just got on and did the job that they had to do in many cases. We've got choice these days and we've got an incredible choice. And so yeah. let's go out there and do all sorts of things and you know, we may not necessarily be absolutely the first, but there's many ways of, of doing these. Yeah. And it's quite inspiring as well that they often did all of this without any recognition, possibly during their own lifetime and knowing that really it would be the men that who, whose legacy continued. But obviously we're hoping to change that. I think the thing that I always remember is that, that um, when uh, the great dancers, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, Fred Astaire was always the one that was celebrated for his wonderful dancing. But it was Ginger Rogers who said, I did everything he did, but backwards and in high heels. <laughs> so when I look at yeah. these women from the 19th century and other, other periods, they're doing the same thing as the men, 
but very often they're also having to run a household and, and look after the children at the same time. I know, it's incredible. Have you found that there's a, a network between the women? Did they kind of know each other and communicate? Well, yeah, in, in the smaller communities, if you consider the 19th century, around Britain and Ireland, a large number of what we would now think as small holiday resorts were thriving port communities all with their, their own ships and their own... So the, these networks are quite small. And so, yes, the women did know each other within these networks. And are there kind of letters between them that you found? Not very often, no. You don't very, no. Don't, very little correspondence. It's really frustrating. When you do, you pounce on it as an absolutely wonderful piece of information. <laughs> but that, that is quite rare, yes. Hmm. Well, I suppose if they were in small communities, they would have lived very close to one another wouldn't have had the need for to write to each other you're right yeah no i think i think that i think the thing that um you know these they aren't interesting women but i think we've also got to be and that's one of the things i'm finding with this particular project because we've been inviting people to write in and contact the project with their stories and one of the things you're finding is there are some myths have grown up about one or two women and I've recently been involved on a, in a Welsh documentary about um, a famous bard, uh, Sarah Jane Rees. Her bardic name was Clanogwen. And she has been um, really put forward as the first she-captain. So uh, a, a certificate, a certificated master mariner. Well, when you start digging into it, you find she wasn't. And that doesn't do women's history any good. It was a myth that grew up, not that she promoted, but grew up after she died. What she was, was a really, really good navigation teacher teaching future captains. Oh, I see. And so this myth has rather overshadowed her real achievement, which is a, a, a pity. And she then went on yeah. to become a very famous bard as, as in, in the Welsh Aesthetics and, and a great champion of, of women's rights. And in, in, this is in the the nineteenth century. So she's an amazing woman, but sadly, no, she wasn't a she wasn't a certificated captain. Oh, interesting. So, returning to the rewriting women into maritime history project, how can our listeners get involved with this and be a part of it? Well, I'd be. I think we'd be delighted. Go to the um, go to the website. Just if you just type in rewriting women into maritime history, you'll find the Lloyd's Register Foundation website. We've been inviting everybody, anybody to send in their stories of, of women in history. We've also got some wonderful um, interviews now with women, current women in the maritime industry and a whole series of fantastic photographs of women in the maritime industry. So it's it's connecting the past and the present. But. Go to that website and anybody can contribute and we'd be most welcome and we'd be fascinated. There must be many, many more stories we've not heard. Yes, I can imagine. That's really exciting. Um, and have you heard any already so far that have kind of stuck in your mind? Um, there's, well, there's quite a few. I mean, the Cranogan one was, was fascinating. I just found yeah. her an amazing woman. And there's another woman in Scotland called Betsy Miller who was also something of a legend in her own lifetime. She was in the early 19th century. And I'd not really come across her before. And she's another one who was running, her, you know, the business of the ship uh, and everything else. And a, a really tough and very much admired woman. Brilliant. 
Thank you so much. Um, this has been a really fascinating chat and we want to encourage everyone to Google rewriting women into maritime history. If you have anything to contribute or if you just want to engage with the material, spread the word. It's a really exciting project. And thank you to Helen for speaking to us today. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please be sure to check out our YouTube channel and follow us on social media. And I'll be back soon with some more guests highlighting the roles of women in maritime history. See you later. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier all built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Ando. And I'm Fer. And we host Niñas Bien Podcasts. We want to invite you to listen to our show. Niñas Bien means good girls in Spanish, but you have to know that this is not a podcast for good girls. Or for girls at all. It is a comedy podcast, so everyone is welcome to listen. We talk about sex, relationships, technology. We recommend movies and TV shows and discuss pop culture in general. And there is Chisme Ajeno too. A section we have just to gossip about everyone. So you'll find something you like here. And you'll practice your Spanish. The cleanest Spanish you'll find, we promise. And if you already hablas español, vamos a hacer tus nuevas amigas. amigas. We'll be your friends for the non-Spanish speakers. New episodes every Monday and Thursday. Hosted by Acast and available to all audio platforms. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>